0: Learn all about investing in real estate in Everett, Washington, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling, with numbers specific to Everett, plus syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes, not all of them specific to Everett. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors. Well, good morning and welcome, everyone. I am your host, James Orr, and we have a very special class today. A class that is uh, pretty popular, I think, with most real estate investors, especially real estate investors just getting started. And that is all of the low down payment financing options that are available for real estate investors. So that's what we're going to be going over today. Let's get started. So, low down financing options. I think a lot of folks come in, a lot of real estate investing folks come in thinking, I need to have. You know, 20% or 25% down in order to be able to buy these rental properties. And that's not quite true. While it is true, you probably will need more of a down payment if you're going to buy non-owner occupant investment properties, properties that you're not going to move into. There are a lot of real estate investors that are choosing to buy properties using low down financing options in order to be able to do strategies like Nomad or house hacking or things of that nature, or even buying properties like a duplex, triplex, or a fourplex, where you can move into one of the units and rent out the other units. So all of those options have low down payment financing options available. And a lot of especially newer real estate investors are going to probably gravitate or opt to do those types of strategies. So let's go over like all the different options you have if you're looking for low down payment financing options. And in the previous class, we covered all of the nothing down, the no down payment financing options. Now we're moving to the low down payment ones. And eventually, as you might've guessed, we will go over all of the traditional financing options available for real estate investors. Okay, so let's go over the big list, kind of like big picture groups of all these different loans. Then we'll drill down into a couple of very specific loan programs. And I'll go into some detail on those. So as we discussed in previous classes, the entire creative financing family of options are probably low down financing options. It's possible you could find some of the creative financing options where you can do one with nothing down. For example, you go negotiate with a seller and you get the seller to agree to a nothing down, Owner carry or nothing down seller financing type of deal. However, I think you're much more likely to run into sellers where they're like, look, you know, I'm willing to do some owner financing, but I need a little bit of money to do XYZ, or I need a little bit of money in order to feel secure in the deal, or whatever you're doing, um, they may require or negotiate from their position a small down payment. And by small down payment, uh, there's no specific number. So it's not like low down starts at 5% or low down starts at 15%. In my mind, I consider anything less than probably 20% to be low down. Although there is a 15% down non-owner occupant loan program available. And so maybe I should kind of move it back to about 15%. Anything less than 15% down is considered low down, but I digress. Okay, so the, all, the, all the creative financing options, and I'll go over a quick list of what those are here on the next slide, but anything like owner financing, wrap financing, loan assumption, subject to, agreement for deed, you know, the old rent-to-own family of lease option, lease purchase, all of those I would consider to be kind of low-down financing options that are available. And you should be able to negotiate a low-down payment option there. And in some cases, probably even nothing down. So that's the whole creative financing thing. So private money, is the next group of low down financing options. And again, this one could very well be nothing down as well. Private money, in my mind, is slightly different than hard money. Hard money are loans that people in the business of making commercial real estate loans are doing. So someone who is in the business of loaning private individuals or LLCs money in order to be able to go buy properties, most of the time it's for buying fixed up properties. Although there are some Hard money lenders that will do like acquisition financing, especially if you're doing some type of like Burr strategy or something like that, although that's sort of fixed up as well. But the hard money um, guys are the guys in the business of doing loans like that private money are people that are not typically in the business of making real estate loans but you happen to know somebody you have a, you have a personal relationship with them and you ask them to make a loan for you the most common example i like to use is you're at thanksgiving dinner and you are talking to grandma about you know what you've been up to and you tell grandma that you're investing in real estate right now and 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 that you're borrowing these money you know this money from a hard money lender and they're charging you whatever it is, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20% and a couple points in order to do the loan. And grandma's like, I've got a million dollars in CDs and I'm only getting 2%. Why don't I loan you the money to do your real estate deals? And you could pay me, you know, three, four, five, six, seven 7%, whatever it is that you negotiate with grandma. And grandma wins because she's getting a higher interest rate than she's getting on her CDs. You win because you're no longer paying hard money loans and you're also helping to support grandma. So, the thought is you go to a private individual, someone that you have a relationship with, and you ask them if they're interested in making usually secured loans on real estate. It doesn't have to be secured. You can do whatever you want. You can structure this in a number of different ways. But that's typically how private money works. So when you're doing that, when you're talking to grandma or your uncle or your best friend or um, you know a business associate from work or that you know, you know has got some money in CDs or whatever that they're considering as an alternative investment, then you can go to them and talk to them about what the options are for your particular deal. And I think in a lot of cases, you will be able to negotiate either a low down payment or in some cases, nothing down on those. And again, this is all based primarily on you negotiating. Of course, the quality of the deal obviously helps. Um, Well, I shouldn't say that. Sometimes it's not the quality of the deal at all. It's the relationship. It's the the trust you have with that person. But in a lot of cases, the quality of the deal is going to help on those as well. So basically it's based on your ability to negotiate as to whether or not the private money deal will be nothing down or low down payment, or maybe they want 50% down. And then in those cases, maybe you decide to use them or maybe you decide not to use them. Okay, and so we talked about private money. Uh, Hard money is the other option. Again, these are people that are in the business. It's very likely you'll be able to negotiate a low down payment option from a hard money lender. A lot of times they want you to have a little bit of skin in the game, although there are definitely some that are willing to do stuff with nothing down if the deal is strong enough in most cases. So if the deal is really, really good, a lot of times you can negotiate nothing down in the deal. However, in a lot of cases with hard money lenders, they're going to want to see a down payment. They're going to want to see you have something invested in the deal um, so that they know that you're likely to kind of complete the project. And these tend to be, the the private money ones, they could be, you you owner occupying a property or you know, someone going and buying a, uh, you know, commercial property, doing a fix and flip, something that they're not going to move into. However, with hard money, they're usually going to exclude any owner occupant type properties, properties that you personally would be moving into. It's okay if you have a tenant move in, but they usually don't want to get involved in the laws related to making consumer loans for an owner occupant. And so they will typically try to avoid those. You may find one that is willing to make an exception or one that doesn't know about this or one that doesn't care. But I think a lot of hard money lenders are going to avoid trying to make owner-occupant loans in that for that reason. Okay. So did we cover hard money loans? Very likely to be able to negotiate low down payment. In some cases, uh, nothing down based on the quality of the deal. I think we talked about that. When we talked about private money. and still applies to hard money, uh, typically commercial properties, So it's not typically good for house hackers or nomads. And for those that don't know, I mean, some people just kind of jump in the middle and this may be the first class they're listening to. Uh, house hackers are people that are buying properties where they are renting out part of the property that they're living in. The most common example is someone buys a duplex. They live in one of the units and they rent out the other unit. But it could be you buy a single family home and you rent out different bedrooms as another example of house hacking. Nomading is different. Nomading is when you buy a property as an owner-occupant you get owner-occupant financing, usually with you know nothing down, 3.5% down, 5% down, 3% down, something like that, where you you move into the property. It is a requirement of the lender that you move into the property. If you don't move into the property, it's considered loan fraud and it's a, it's a big deal. Don't do loan fraud. Um, so you put 5% down as an example. You move into the property. You live there for a year. The year is a requirement of the lender. When you go and get the loan, they're gonna have you sign a piece of paper that says you're agreeing to occupy the property for at least a year. So by signing that document, if you don't stay there a year, that's loan fraud. It's called occupancy fraud. So don't do that. So you live there for a year, but once the year is up, you can take the property and you can then convert it to a rental property, move out, put tenants in the property, and continue the process of buying your next property, You know, probably with you know 3%, 5%, 3.5% down, acquire the next property, live there for a year, and then convert that one to the rental. So the nomad strategy is systematically buying a property as an owner-occupant, living in the property for at least a year. Sometimes it's longer if you need to save up more for a down payment. Then when you're done living in the property, you convert the previous one to a rental, you buy another owner-occupant property, you move in and you repeat the cycle until you have as many rental properties as you desire. So that is the nomad strategy. And you can nomad and house act at the same time. Imagine for a minute, you owner-occupy into a fourplex, you rent out three of the units, and then after the year is up, you move out of the fourplex and you go buy a single family home and you repeat the process. Or maybe you buy a single family home, you get roommates while you're living there for the first year. And then once the first year is up, you move out, maybe you bring your roommates with you. Maybe you replace yourself with another roommate where you were living or whatever you decide to do. But that is the idea behind nomading and house hacking at the same time. Okay, so a lot of the no and low down financing options the traditional ones, the, the kind of more conventional go to a mortgage broker type of loans you're going to get are good for house hackers. You know, those guys that are renting out bedrooms or buying duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes and renting out part of the property that they're living in or they're for nomads who are buying a property as an owner-occupant, moving in, living there for a year and then converting it to some type of rental. So the two primary, two primary low-down financing options for house hackers and nomads, real estate investors that are using that strategy are FHA financing, And FHA financing is a three and a half percent down loan program that we typically use to buy single family homes, but you could also use them to buy um, duplexes, triplexes, or fourplexes. You cannot use them to buy five units or more. That's a totally different loan program. But if you want to go buy a single family home, a duplex, triplex, or fourplex, you can use FHA financing, a three and a half percent down loan program in order to be able to do those. The other Typical low down financing option for house hackers and nomads is the conventional loan, and that's a single family home only product um, for the low down payment options. You could do, you know, conventional loans for these higher uh, with higher down payments for multifamilies. But typically, if you're doing the low down option, it's going to be for single family home only. And then sometimes you'll be able to get down payment assistance in addition to getting the loan. So for example, in some real estate markets, not all, but in some real estate markets, you'll find local down payment assistance programs that combine with an FHA loan program where they don't have, they don't require three and a half percent down anymore. They may require one percent down or a thousand dollars down or something like that. And the down payment assistance program helps you with the other three and a half percent, the other part missing from the three and a half percent. So that's a different strategy to think about. Okay. Um, And then there may be I won't know, but there may be banks that are local to you, like local community type banks that also offer low down payment programs or nothing down loan programs, if you could find those too, So maybe your local credit union has a you know 3% down or 5% down loan program that is slightly different than the FHA or conventional loan program. So you may want to check with them as well. All right. So that's the big picture overview of the low down financing options. Just a quick review of what the creative financing ones are. I sort of gave you this list already, but I will share them with you. And then if you, if you think any of these sound interesting to you, you'll want to dig into more. But the creative financing ones that probably are low down, owner financing, where you get the seller to act like the bank, those could be low down wrap financing where the seller has an existing loan on the property and they decide to keep the loan in place, but act like they're financing the whole thing. You send the payment to them. Part of that payment goes to pay their underlying loan that still remains on the property. So that's wrap financing. That could be a low down, sometimes nothing down. A loan assumption. If you're going to formally go in and assume like an FHA loan, you could do that. And a lot of times those would require a small down payment in order to pay the seller some of their equity the whole rent to own, lease to own, lease option, lease purchase family where you're leasing the property and you either have an option to buy the property at some point in the future or you have a lease on the property and you have a purchase contract to purchase the property at some point in the future. A lot of times those will require that you have some type of upfront money. In some cases, it looks a lot like a security deposit, right? Like the seller is like, hey, listen, I want to rent you the property, and you go to them and say, hey, if I, if I rent this property, I'm good. at make my payments on time. Would you consider selling this property to me? And they're like, sure. Yeah, I'll give you an option to buy the property you know, for the next two years at this price. And you know, you guys come to an agreement on that, but they may still expect you to have a security deposit, which looks a lot like a down payment, which looks a lot like low down. Okay. So those are some options when you consider that. Then the whole agreement for deed, bond for deed, contract for deed, installment land contract, family of kind of creative financing options. And I think a lot of those sellers are going to want you to have a little bit of money in the deal as well. And then buying properties subject to the existing financing, where the seller deeds you the property, they leave their existing loan in place, or liens on the property for that matter, but they leave their existing loans in place on the property and you buy the property with that that loan still in place, subject to the existing financing that is on the property. And in those cases, I think some of the sellers are gonna require, insist, negotiate, um, some type of low down payment on those as well, okay? So that's sort of the creative financing family of options and how they kind of relate to being low down. All right, so let's talk about two different loan programs, the FHA loan program, which we'll talk about in detail here, and then the conventional loan program. So we'll go over just a little bit of detail about these. of course. The the place to actually get the information on this is to go talk to your lender. So if you think, you know, you're going to be doing the FHA loan program, I give you some really basic information. I'm not a lender and you're going to want to go talk to your specific lender and get the most current up-to-date stuff because this stuff can change. Um, I'll I'll kind of point out a couple of recent changes that my lender told me about. uh, Matt Weaver uh, from Excel Financial provided me some updated information on the conventional loan program here uh, just a few minutes before I uh, made this presentation. So um, you can kind of see, though, that you want to talk to your lender and make sure that nothing has changed and get the most up-to-date stuff. And maybe you fall into one of the more unusual exception situations, which I'm probably not going to cover here. I'm not going to go over all the different things. You can go online. You can download the requirements for these loans, or you can call your lender, which is a lot easier, and just talk to your lender about the specifics. All right, so the FHA loan, Federal Housing Administration loan, FHA, um, it is what I would refer to as nomad approved. I like these loans for nomads to own properties, especially if you're a nomad buying a duplex, triplex, or fourplex. Of course, you can do house hacking with this as well. So uh, it's usually 3.5% down. You can put more down. The terms of the loan uh, will probably improve if you put more down, the PMI may change when the PMI falls off. <clears throat> excuse me may change. So the three and a half percent down is the minimum you can do and a lot of folks are going to choose to do the minimum in this particular case. So three and a half percent down for an FHA loan um, it is usually a fixed rate loan with private mortgage insurance. What FHA loans call mortgage insurance premium, MIP. So PMI is private mortgage insurance. it's insurance that you pay to protect the lender in case you default. So the lender really says, look, I'd prefer it if you put 20 percent down but you say, look, I don't want to put 20% down. They're like, okay, well, I would be still willing to make you the loan if you put less than 20% down, but I need to feel protected. Usually I feel protected when you put 20% down. That way, if you decide not to make payments and you default and I have to foreclose, then I'm likely to get all my money back. But if you only want to put 3.5% down, then if you default and you don't make your payments anymore, I might be forced to foreclose on you. Excuse me. And I might actually have to take a loss on the property. I'm going to put myself on mute for a second and cough to clear my throat one second. Okay, I'm back. And I'll take a sip of water as well. So the lender says, Usually, I'd like you to have 20% down. In this case, you don't want to put 20% down. You only want to put 3.5% down. So I'm willing to still make you the loan. But what I want you to do, I want you to pay this third party, this insurance company that will insure me in case you default and I have to foreclose and I don't get all my money back. And so you're paying for an insurance policy because you chose not to put 20% down to protect the lender who would have preferred you to put 20% down. But since you didn't, they're willing to make you the loan as long as you have insurance that protects them in case you default and they have the foreclose. That's what PMI is. And so in this case, the mortgage insurance premium that comes with FHA loans, it's a little bit different than the typical mortgage insurance, uh, the private mortgage insurance that you get with conventional financing. What's different is when you put three and a half percent down, the mortgage insurance premium never goes away. With conventional financing, a lot of times when you get below 80% loan to value, that mortgage insurance payment that you're making each month would go away. So once you get to a certain point where the lender now feels protected and they no longer need the insurance, you no longer need that make that payment. With FHA, that doesn't happen. With FHA, the mortgage insurance premium remains there for the life of the loan. So in order to get rid of it, you'd either need to sell the property or change the financing you have on the property. Either pay off the loan completely or refinance out into a different loan product completely. Okay. So usually with FHA, three and a half percent down, they're going to require um, some type of PMI on the loan and it can't be canceled. You must refi the loan to get rid of it or sell the property um, or pay it off in order to get rid of PMI. Usually it's 640 plus credit scores. However, there are some exceptions for FHA that you can go down to 580 in some cases. So this this tends to be the loan product that if a client's got some credit challenges, the lender's probably going to suggest because it tends to be the loan product you can get um, where the interest rate doesn't get impacted by low credit scores. Although maybe that changed, you go check with your lender. Uh, but that's my understanding. If you happen to had if you happen to have had a bankruptcy, it's a two-year waiting period since your bankruptcy filing in order for you to get an FHA loan. If you've had a foreclosure, it's typically a three-year waiting period for you to be able to get an FHA loan. So if you've had a bankruptcy and or foreclosure, realize that you're going to be waiting either two or three years, depending on which one was and kind of the, the later of those dates, if you kind of think about it that way. Um, if you're like, hey, James, is, does this start when I file my bankruptcy or my bankruptcy is kind of discharged or when it goes to court or anything like that? I don't know the answer. Go talk to your lender and find out exactly when that happens. Okay. Don't, and the other thing, don't go look this up online. Go talk to an actual lender who's making these loans. Because you may go and see like a forum discussion where someone tells you a number and that's not right. It may have been right for their particular situation because they may have had something exceptional going on. But you want to talk to the lender about you, and your specific situation, and just call a lender that you're going to be working with to get the loan. And they'll, they'll tell you what's what the real deal is for you and your specific situation. Okay. So we talked about bankruptcy foreclosure, we talked about credit scores. For FHA loans, you must owner occupy the property. You must move into the property, you must live there. So if you're getting a single family home, you gotta move into the property. If you're getting a duplex, triplex or fourplex, you need to move into one of the units. So you could buy a duplex and move into one side and rent out the other. You can move into a triplex, move into one side and rent out the other two units. You can do a fourplex, do the same thing, okay? Um, they do have maximum loan amounts by county. So realize you may be limited in the most you can go to with FHA financing with these uh, maximum loan amounts. Uh, you can typically only have one FHA loan at a time. There are exceptions to this. For example, I think if you inherit a property and your parents or whatever it was, you know, whoever is passing the property onto you, if they had an FHA loan, you can have two in place at the same time in that particular case. You can also, my understanding is, If you move to a different city and the distance is more than, I don't know, whatever it is, Uh, I'm going to make it up, but go check with the lender, you know, 100 miles. If you move 100 miles away, uh, you can get another FHA loan in a new city. But again, check with your lender. There may be more exceptions, but most of the time you can only get one FHA loan, which is frustrating for some people who come into this for the first time. They're like, you know, I'm going to go buy 10 fourplexes and I'm going to get FHA financing on each of them. Ah, maybe not. You know That's uh, that's going to be tricky to do. It's going to be really hard to do. Uh, is it possible? Maybe. I mean, maybe if you hit all the exceptions and you move 100 miles away and you buy another fourplex and you move 100 miles away again, buy another fourplex, and maybe you get married and your, your spouse has a couple and uh, you know they did the same thing or uh, who knows, right? Like, could you get four, like, you know, 10 fourplexes with FHA loans? Maybe, but I would not plan on it. Usually we plan on doing one. Because uh, that's usually the limit. There is a version of the FHA loan that allows you to finance repair costs. So if you're if you're buying a property, you know you're trying to do like a, a burst strategy, although it's not exactly a burst strategy because you're borrowing the money up front. But sometimes that strategy where you're going into a property that needs work, and you are looking to borrow the money to do the repairs. Like you found a property, but it's just really a wreck. Uh, and you still want to do 3.5% down, there is a FHA 203K program, which allows you to include repair costs in the FHA loan. Now, for those of you that are handy thinking, I'm just going to do this and I'll pocket the difference because I'll do all the work. Nope. They've already thought of that. So uh, it does require that you have third-party contractors do the work. You're not allowed to do the work yourself. And the FHA escrows the money and they release it to the contractor as the work is done. So uh, if you're going to do that two or three K loan program, go talk to a lender, get all the details, um, and find out exactly how that all plays out. But realize it's going to be hard for you to, to do the work yourself. And again, I think I mentioned this on the other slide, but uh, there is some down payment assistance um, often coupled with FHA. It may not be available in your local marketplace, but if your local marketplace has down payment assistance programs, um, you may be able to use this in addition, in conjunction with your FHA loan so that part of the 3.5% is covered by some type of down payment assistance program, whether that's a loan or a grant or something like that. Um, you'll have to go find out what the details of your specific program are, but a lot of times they're, they're combined with the FHA loan program. And if you're trying to get the seller to help cover some of your closing costs, the FHA loan, I believe, has up to a 6% of the purchase price as a possible seller concession. So if you're able to negotiate to get the seller to contribute some money to help cover your closing costs, which means you're buying the property at a discount, essentially, unless you're raising the price by that much. If you're getting the seller to agree to contribute some money towards your closing costs, you could do up to 6% of the purchase price um, in, in order to get that on an FHA loan. There's a limitation of max that at 6. Usually we're not anywhere near that, just so you know. All right, so that's the FHA loan. Now let's talk about conventional financing. This one is also Nomad approved. I really like this one for doing Nomads. In fact, this is probably the most common Nomad loan program. If you're going to be doing that, that strategy where you buy a property, move in, live there for a year, then you convert it to a rental. The conventional financing loan program, 5% down especially, is your most common version of that. So this is conventional loan. Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, you may have heard it described as those. Um, they're typically fixed interest rates and they're typically 30 year amortizations, So they are, and FHA is 30 years as well, but they tend to be fixed, fixed interest rate and 30 year amortizations. We tend not to do 15 year loans because the monthly payment goes up quite a bit for a 15 year loan. Although, you know, if you're in a, a you know, situation where 15 year makes sense, you're welcome to do that. And they do offer those, but realize most of the time we're doing 30 year loans on those. For conventional financing, typically it's 740 plus credit score for the best interest rates, you may be able to do some lower, there's probably some mitigating factors and they may do hit on some other things based on that. But uh, usually 740 credit scores get you the best interest rates. Uh, For owner occupants, which is what we're talking about doing here, it could be as low as 3% down, but most commonly we're doing 5% down. And in both those cases, there's gonna be some type of private mortgage insurance because you're putting less than 20% down. Okay, that private mortgage insurance is typically whenever you put less than 20% down on, on a property. The 3% down one is called the home ready or home possible loan. Um, Primarily it's for first time home buyers. So you can't use that repeatedly. It's my understanding, but go check with your lender see if you can use it more than once. Most of the time you're gonna be doing the 5% down um, with these types of loans. And usually the 3% down is a little bit uglier interest rate. It may be worthwhile for you to save up extra in order to get that extra 2%. It may make it a much better loan, a little bit better cash flow for you. It might be worthwhile doing that. Typically, you can get ten non-owner occupant conventional loans, personal security number. However, when you're doing owner occupant loans, there is no limit. You have to qualify, but there's no numbered limit on that. So, if you're going to try to go buy, you know, twenty um, percent down investment properties, you will be cut off from getting conventional loans after ten. Now, in some cases, you can split the loans between you and your spouse. Um, and, and this would probably require you to do separate tax returns and for you to not have both of you guys on each of the properties. But imagine for a minute, you were really committed to doing you know, 20 properties or 15 properties, something over 10. And you're like, okay, look, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna start filing separate tax returns, even though we're married, and we're gonna buy the properties. You're gonna buy the first one in your name with a loan that's only in your name and your social security number. And then I'm gonna buy the next one in my name with my social security number. And we're gonna kind of alternate back and forth until we get to 20. By doing it that way, you could technically do 20, 10 each non-owner occupant conventional loans by splitting between spouses. And so you'll need to do some work, talk to a lender, do some loan planning with your lender to do this. Um, most of the time people are not willing to go to that extreme. Um, but there you go. There is no limit for the owner-occupant ones. So if you have you know, 10 properties already and you're trying to do your next property as an owner-occupant, you're not limited by that one. So you could do an 11th conventional loan as long as you're moving into the property to do that. So if you're trying to do the nomad strategy, you can go beyond 10. But if you're trying to do you know, buying non-owner-occupant properties, you're probably going to be cut off at the 10 number per social security number. Uh, typically, add five percent down payment for multifamily. I've got a little slide here coming up with the down payment amounts. Uh, two to four units is the multifamily one. For Fanny, you could do cash out refinances up to four finance one to four unit properties. For Freddie, it's up to six. Um, this may this this rule may change. I I um I knew this rule existed at one point. I'm not sure if it's still current. So check with your lender to do that. Uh, both of the things rate and term refis up to ten finance one to four unit properties. So nomads, be careful. If you think, hey, look, I'm going to do this nomad strategy and I'm going to acquire a bunch of equity and properties. And then I'm going to try to do some type of cash out refinance to fund acquiring new properties. Realize that's a tricky strategy to accomplish because when you're doing these nomad strategies, you're putting you know, usually 3% or, or more commonly 5% down. It takes a while for you to get to the point where you get at least 20% of equity so that you could do the refi and then enough equity where it's worth doing that refi because now you're going to go and try to do a refinance Take the loan that you have that was an owner-occupant loan, presumably at a better interest rate because it was owner-occupant. And now you're going to try to do a cash-out refinance, take the hit on the interest rate, and you're only going to get a certain amount of money out there. I don't know. That seems like an expensive way to access that equity, in my opinion. So be super careful about this. Really think through that strategy if that's a strategy you are going to do. It's not like an automatic no. It's just much trickier than I think folks realize. Um, You may want to discuss or consider minimizing your interest rates as you acquire while you can if you're going above refi thresholds and not able to do cash out refinance in the future. This is the case where it might be better for you to buy down your interest rate when you're doing a nomad strategy and you're already getting an owner-occupant, a little bit lower interest rate, and you're probably not going to be able to access that money with cash out refinances for a long time. Um, So it might be better for you to actually buy down the rate and get a really good rate, knowing that you're going to keep that loan for a very long time anyway. And um, I I think Matt told me this. I think you could do a rate and term refinance immediately after closing. So if you're trying to do some type of like, you know, uh, buy a property and then do a refinance to to get better rates and terms like right after closing, you can do that. Like if rates drop a lot from once you've locked, but there is a 12 month waiting period, which is up from six months before on doing any type of cash out. So this is going to really impact those that are trying to do the BRRRR strategy where you're buying a property and then you're planning on doing some type of cash out refinance in order to pull some of your repair money or some of the money out when you bought the deal significantly below market. Now you've got to wait 12 months instead of waiting six months. It's a little bit longer delay, slows you down a little bit, kind of makes it a little bit harder to burr. Uh Between conventional financing, there is a, a seller concession range, depending on how much you're putting down, between 2% and 9%. Um, It's about 6% with 20% down owner-occupant. It's 2% for non-owner-occupant. So don't try to get a seller to contribute money towards your closing costs um, more than 2% before you, uh, you know, unless you know that you can actually use all that and that the lender is going to allow it. So check with your lender before you negotiate your seller concessions. That's another way of saying that. The most common conventional loan is 20% down, although we could do these 5% down for for owner-occupants. And there is a 15% down. Um, on up to 10 properties for doing that. So realize that you can do 15% down non-owner occupant loans for these. The, there is PMI on that one and the interest rate is usually a little bit uglier than doing 20% down. All right, so let's go over this little table here um, to talk about the standard eligibility requirements. There's different versions of this. And if you go look up the uh, Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac um, seller guidelines, or selling guidelines. Um, it'll, it'll kind of give you an idea of like what the loan to values are and, you know, for manual underwriting, for desktop underwriting and, or, or go talk to a lender, it's probably a better thing. But there is a chart, uh, like a PDF with a chart. And this is from that PDF. And so this is the standard eligibility requirements for desktop underwriting, version 11.0. Um, I got this this morning. So this is as up to date as I could find. Um, and this shows you an idea of like what the maximum loan to value is on different property situations. And so I'm not going to cover second homes or investment properties, except to say with investment properties for the purchase for one unit, the maximum loan to value is at 85%, which is that 15% down loan program. If you're going to buy a duplex, triplex, or fourplex, the maximum, the the minimum you can do down is 25%. The maximum loan to value is 75% loan to value. Okay. Um, And so you can go look at those here. If you want to look at the limited cash out or the cash out refinance options, you can look at those as well on the screen. However, for the principal residents, for those that are like doing nomad or house hacking or something like that, if you're gonna go buy a property with one unit, you can do as much as 3% down. That's that 97% one. Um, For adjustable rate mortgages, you have to have 5% down, but for fixed rate mortgages, you could do 3% down on those. If you're doing a duplex, uh, you could do 15% down if you're gonna move into the property. If you're going to do a three or four units, a triplex or a fourplex, you have to put 25% down in order to owner-occupy the property there, okay? So that just gives you an idea of what the loan-to-values are, the maximum ones are for those, and you can go look at them, all right? So in conclusion, there are a number of low down payment options from the creative financing family to private loans to hard money loans. And there are other options, more traditional, conventional options for owner-occupants Financing as well. Okay. If you're doing non owner occupant financing, if you're not planning on moving into the property, really your options are going to be limited to some of the creative financing options, private financing, and the hard money loans. Okay. For doing low down, for all but the hard money loans, they're probably also good options for house hackers and nomads. You're probably not going to be able to do a hard money loan as a house hacker or as a nomad. There probably are some exceptions to this, but that's a good general rule. Now there may also be local low down payment options as well from local banks, but the two mainstream low down payment programs for traditional financing are FHA and conventional financing. FHA is 3.5% down, there's a conventional financing 3% down loan, and there's a there's a 5% down one, which is the much more common one that we typically are using. And these tend to be really good for house hackers and nomads. All right, that's all I got for you. I hope you enjoyed the presentation. Thank you, everybody. I will talk to you soon. Have a great day. With home prices up, mortgage interest rates up, and rents up but not quite enough to counteract the higher prices and interest rates, cash flow on rental properties in Everett is harder than ever. Book a call with the Real Estate Financial Planner to apply our proprietary eighty-eight strategies to improve cash flow on your rentals. See the show notes for a link to schedule your call and improve your cash flow today. If you're a real estate agent, lender, or professional in Everett that wants to help our real estate investor listeners, consider reaching out to learn about collaboration opportunities with this podcast. We'd love to add more value to our listeners by having you assist our investors buy, sell, and finance their real estate investments. See the show notes to schedule a call to discuss collaboration opportunities.